And Mark chapter 10 is where we're going to be today, taking a look at verses 32 to 45 together. Um, I'll read it for us, and then we'll come back and dive in. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32, Mark writes, And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed them were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is God's Word. I'm a fan of the C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia, and at the end of both the cinematic production and the book, Prince Caspian, Uh, there is a dialogue or an exchange between Aslan, the great lion king who roars, and Reepicheep, this little tiny noble but valiant mouse who likes to sword fight. And they have this exchange following a battle between the Talmarines and the Narnians in which Reepicheep loses his tail. And following the battle, he comes before Aslan and asks him, would you restore my tail to me? Reepicheep says, I regret that I must withdraw. In other words, shrink back from you. For a tail is the honor and glory of a mouse. To which Aslan replies, I wonder if you do not think too much about your own honor. Listen, in that short exchange, I think Lewis captures the essence of our human condition oftentimes. We think too much, too often, too intently, and too intensely about our own honor, about our own fame, about our own renown, about our own reputations, about our own glory. And one of the evidences of us thinking too much about our own honor is found in the text before us as Jesus turns our, tries to un- turn our understanding of power dynamics in the context of human relationships on their head. Because what he's going to say about what greatness and glory and honor and renown looks like in the kingdoms of this world is often found through positions of power and prestige where people come bowing before you. But Jesus says in the kingdom of God, 
greatness is found through service and sacrifice in which you bow before to serve others. He turns our understanding on its head. But we struggle with this greatly. And so this morning as we dig into this text, what I want us to see is what keeps us from doing what Jesus says, what frees us to do what Jesus says, and then how do we go about doing it? What keeps us from embracing, forgetting about ourselves, forgetting about our honor, forgetting about our renown and reputation? What frees us to do that, and then how do we go about it? Make sense? That's where we're headed. All right. So first things first, what keeps us from it? Listen, we struggle with what Jesus says here about the relationship between discipleship and greatness, glory, power, and prestige because, here's why, pride is the default preset of our human hearts. It's the default preset, church. Right? Whenever you buy a new electronic device, whenever you go to the store, like, I don't know, some of you are like iPhone junkies, all right? And so you go to the store, new iPhone 12 has just come out, right? You're on the upgrade plan, so every time they release another one, right, you get the new device. And whenever you open it up, right, it's all shiny. Man, that thing is shiny, isn't it, when you open it up? It's real pretty, no scratches on it anywhere, right? And it's just, it just glimmers in the light. It's a beautiful piece of electronic equipment. And so you get the new phone. Well, that new phone, whenever you power it on, is programmed with some default presets that you can go in and change like what notifications you want to receive right what gets pushed to your home screen what doesn't make your phone beep or buzz right all the notification presets the presets with regards to when you access wi-fi or whether or not you you want to use cellular data it's got all these default presets that come pre-prescribed by the manufacturer that has made this particular device Listen, nearly every piece of equipment that you buy, the, from the cars that you drive to the phones that you use, the electronics in them have default presets. It's how they come out of the box or off the lot. And I want to tell you something this morning, church, that the default preset, how we as human beings come out of the box, how we come off of the lot, is with hearts that are filled with pride. Thinking too much about our own honor thinking too much about our own renown, thinking too much and too greatly and too often and too intently and too intensely about our own reputations. I think you see that through the pages of the Scripture and also in our own lives. Listen, if you go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, when our first parents fall, what you see is that the reason that they fall is because they want to be what? Like God. They want to be like God. They want to have the renown. They want to have the honor. They want to have the glory of God themselves. And listen, that, has, that, that was the, the, the precipice of the fall for our first parents. It continues to be something that pervades our modern culture. You don't believe me? Just look at the social media dynamic that it's created. It hadn't created, but it just inflamed it in our lives. Okay, For instance... I know I'm not stepping on toes this morning, but listen, the, the, the very slogan of YouTube is what? Broadcast yourself. Create a platform for yourself. Make a name for yourself. Be seen. Be someone. Right? Social media likes, loves, retweets. I don't know if, like, this is one of the reasons I had to get off of this stuff, okay? Because my heart, I could sense it. Like in the morning, if I post something at night, in the morning I wake up, I want to see who's liked it. I want to see who's noticed it. I want to see who's shared it. I want to see who's right, right, retweeted it. Okay? Right? 
because we want to see that our name is going forward. In fact, there is a website called clout.com that measures your online footprint, and you can begin each day with a score of your virtual significance. Okay? You can push it right to your inbox or right to your phone and show you just how famous you are, how widespread your reach is. We think too often, too much about our own honor. And one of the ways that pride, that's our default preset, shows up is in our pursuit of positions of greatness, honor, power, and authority. And it becomes quite clear from the reading of the text that this is where James and John are. Think about, the, think about them coming to Jesus. Right? What do they come to him? They say, Jesus, we want you to... Can you imagine asking that question, kids, of your parents? Right? We want you to do whatever we ask. Right? Whatever we ask of you. How's that going to go? But look at how Jesus responds. What do, you, what do you want me to do? And he said, we want you to grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left whenever you come into your glory. In other words, Jesus, whenever your kingdom comes into its fullness, we want to have positions of honor. We want to have positions of prestige. We want to have positions of power and influence. We want to have positions of authority, Jesus. Right? We want to share in that splendor, in that glory. Right? We want to have honor, Jesus. And in verse 41, listen, when the other disciples hear it, they become indignant. They get really angry at James and John. Okay? And it's not because they are more spiritual than James and John. I just want you to get this. Okay? It's because James and John beat them to the punch right? in making the ask. That's why Jesus calls them all together whenever He responds to it. So they're filled with anger, resentment, outrage, and fury. C.S. Lewis, I think he captures the essence of this in this way. He says, pride, what it does, he says it resents every kind of superiority in others. It denigrates, it wishes its annihilation. Presently, he suspects, the one who's filled with pride, every mere difference of being a claim to superiority. Pride makes us suspect of any differences. It makes us suspect of any, any sense of authority. And it puts us in a position to want to pursue and clamor for it. It's our default preset. And it makes us want positions of authority. And so apart from, listen, ordering our everyday ordinary lives around the message and mission of Jesus, we have a disordered relationship to power. We have a disordered relationship to authority. And here's what it creates. It creates all kinds of abusive behaviors. See, because pride ultimately abuses power. It abuses power. Notice the way Jesus says that people outside of covenant relationship with God treat authority, greatness, power, and rule. In verse 42, he says this. He says that the Gentiles, right, who aren't ruled, those who are ruled by pride, apart from a relationship with God, they seek greatness and honor through positions of power and authority. And when they get them, they lord it over and exercise authority over those who are under them. Now listen, the verbs lord it over and exercise authority over, they literally meant to gain mastery or power over others, to subdue them, to function as a despot, dictator, or tyrant. Because what pride does is it usurps power and it leads to all kinds of abusive, destructive, and predatorial behaviors in our life. Listen to what Tim Keller in his book Counterfeit Gods as he speaks about the idol of power. Listen to what he says. He says, one of the great ironies of sin is that when human beings try to become more than human beings, to be as gods, they fall to become lower than human beings. To be your own God and live for your own glory and power leads to the most 
bestial and cruel kind of behavior. Pride makes you a predator, not a person. And when someone whose heart is reigned and ruled by pride rises to a position of power, it leads to abuse. It leads to predatorial actions and behaviors. And listen, there may not be a better illustration of this than Eustace, little Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Another C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia reference. But uh, we're introduced to Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He's a preteen boy that everyone hates and everyone hates him. All right, he hates everyone. Nobody likes him, all right? Uh, Because Eustace, he's selfish, he's mean, no one can get along with him. He makes everything difficult for everyone that he finds himself around. But he finds himself on this boat called the Dawn Treader. It's taking a great voyage across the ocean. And at one point, the boat stops on this what appears to be a deserted island. And as the individuals on the boat go out to explore, Eustace goes out and he begins to explore the island. And he comes across what appears to be an abandoned cave. And as he makes his way into the cave, as he gets deeper and deeper into the cave, what he discovers is a hoard of treasure. I mean, there is gold and there is silver and there are gemstones and jewelry. And he thinks to himself, ah, I found it. I'm rich, right? I've got everything now. Right? I can pay back everyone for all the things they have said to me, about me, and done to me. Those who have laughed and stepped on me, I'm finally going to laugh at and step on them. You see, he's kind of a twerp, okay? You know what I'm saying? That, that's, that's, I mean, you just want to flick him in the back of the head. You know, that kind of kid, all right? And the reason he is that way, he bullies everyone, tries to overrun everyone, because in his little preteen heart, he's trying to control others to give himself a sense of identity so he can know who he is. And when he stumbles upon this treasure, he says, I finally found the means to being able to exercise the scope of power and authority that I want to exercise. I finally found the means to dominate, control, and rule others. They will have to bow down to me. Now they will have to listen to me. They need me now. And so he falls asleep on that hoard of treasure, dreaming all these dreams about his influence and prestige and renown. And when he awakens, he finds himself to have been sleeping on the horde of a dragon. And in fact, he himself now is a dragon. See, when he wakes up, he finds that he's turned into a big, horrible, ugly dragon. That's what pride does with power. It turns it into a predatorial creature in our lives. We become big, ugly, terrible and listen, I want, you to, I want to show you something this morning. This expresses itself in the context of all kinds of human relationships. When a heart ruled by pride is delegated to some degree of power because we want to make a name for ourselves and think too much about our own honor, it affects all kinds of human relationships in the workplace. When somebody moves from being an employee to an employer, when somebody moves from being supervised to a supervisor, if their heart is being ruled by pride, what it ultimately creates is a culture in that workplace that's dominated by hostility and dominance where no dissenting voice is appreciated or allowed. In other words, you can't disagree. 
You can't disagree. Listen, uh, we as a family have been through that recently. Right? Well, you cannot disagree. Right? And you're, you're, those who are in authority begin to say things like this. Well, it's my way or the highway. Right? Or they say, you have a choice in where you would like to work. So you either get behind this or move on. Right? That is an abuse of power in the context of workplace. And you see oftentimes places where there's an abusive uh, dynamic of power in the context of the workplace. You know what they end up creating is high turnover. They're always churning through people coming in and out. Because at first everything seems like it's great and it's moving up and to the right. And then all of a sudden... You get into the context of the nitty-gritty of that workplace dynamic and that workplace culture, and you see that people get crushed, they get stepped on, they get stepped over, they get impaled with a sword of pride. It takes place in marriage as well. It takes place in marriage. Listen, both in, in domination and manipulation. All right, let me see if I can unpack this for you a little bit. Listen, subsequent to the fall, the hearts of men and women both, all right, They're both bent toward sinful expressions of power and control. Okay? Listen, immediately on the heels of our first parents falling to sin, in Genesis 3.16, we read these words, God saying to the woman, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. See, what happens after the fall, when sin enters the world and begins to distort the marital relationship is this. When God says, your desire shall be for your husband, he's not saying, listen, you're just going to want to hold hands and cuddle, and you're going to have him by your side, and you're going to want to grow old together and sit on the, the porch in your rocking chairs and sip coffee. You're just going to want to be together all the time. That's not what that word desire means. Right? Elsewhere in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that language of desire shows up again, and it shows up in the context of God speaking to Cain, saying, if you do well... Will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. You must rule over it. See, with the word desire, same word as used in Genesis 3.16, shows up in Genesis 4.7, and it's clearly negative. In other words, sin wants to have its way. Sin wants to be in control. Sin wants to call the shots in your life. And this is also how the language is used in Genesis 3.16 because hearts, when they get broken by sin, the, the, the prototypical expression of that for ladies in the context of a marriage is to want to exert control, want to exert rule, want to call the shots, and they often try to do that by leveraging their influence through power plays with manipulation. Now, I hadn't gotten to the men yet. Okay? But that's the reality. Pride wants to exert control, and one way that it does that is through manipulation. On the flip side, the language of rule in 3.16, when it says, he shall rule over you, refers to the husband's sinful response to the exercise, exercising domination or dominion and seeing his wife just as another part of God's creation that he should be able to subdue and rule over just like all the other beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. And so oftentimes, listen, the way that a man's heart expresses itself 
under the control of pride in the context of these power dynamics in marital relationships is not necessarily through manipulation, but domination. So men would dominate, women would manipulate, but both are an attempt in order to get control, to exercise power. They're both sinful distortions of God's intention, which are expressions of a heart that are bent by pride. Listen, and because of this, some, some women, because men are bent toward this domination, some women live a very kind of mousy existence with no voice in their marriage because every time they tried to speak, they were met with this thunderous force. And they were silenced. Other men, they might live a, a very passive existence because every time they tried to lead, it was met with guilt trips and emotional storms. It's not an either-or thing. It's a both-and. And the bottom of both is the prideful pursuit of honor and glory and greatness through power and privilege, control, and authority. Parenting, it affects our parenting. My goodness, does it affect our parenting. Oftentimes as parents, and listen, I can be guilty of this just as much as the next person, is that in our parenting, oftentimes what we do when we try to exercise God-given authority in our homes is we aim to control our children rather than cultivate them. We want to control them. And I don't, listen, I don't know if you realize this yet or not. If you have young kids in the house, like that works for you at some point, right? <laughs> but the older your kids get, listen, let me, let me just say, the less and less that strategy is actually effective. Okay? Because at some point you can no longer pick that child up and put them into the place where they need to be. Right? But oftentimes, our anger whenever our kids move outside of the boundaries that we've established, it may be from a sense of parental love because anger always is born out of either fear or love, one of the two, but it could also be born not out of love, but out of fear that you're losing control, that you're losing power, that you're losing authority in the relationship. And so rather than just aiming for control, what we ought to be aiming for is cultivating children who understand authority, that God is in authority, that He's delegated authority, they are under authority, and one day they will be in authority. Right? And so not just controlling, but cultivating them. It takes place in the church as pastors leverage platform and personality to make a name for themselves that takes precedence over the, the people of the church that God has called them to shepherd and care for. It takes place in the context and dynamics of all kinds of human relationships. Whenever a heart that is ruled by pride reaches out to try to grab power, it leads to predatorial types of behaviors. In all kinds of relationships. In every heart, listen church, every single human heart comes out of the box this way. Every single one. That's what keeps us from this. But what frees us for it? And I got one word for you. Jesus. Jesus. See, the heart of the Christian faith, church, is this idea of substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. In fact, one of the most important verses in the Bible 
might be right here in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now that expression, ransom for many, hints at the fact that what stands at the heart of who Jesus is is the fact that He's come to give Him His life as a substitute for sinners. In fact, the little word for there, when he says ransom for many, that little word for could have several different Greek words that Jesus or Mark could have used whenever he wrote that. But it's the word onti, which means instead of or in the place of. In other words, he's come to give his life as a ransom in the place of or instead of many. The word ransom in our language usually only gets used in reference to like kidnapping and stuff like that, right? When we see a news story. But in Jesus' day, in, in the day of the New Testament, in the Greek, it literally meant to buy the freedom of a slave or prisoner. And the one paying the ransom, listen church, would bring a huge sacrificial payment which replaced the slave or the prisoner and purchased their freedom. He would put something in their place to release them from prison, to release them from bondage, to release them from slavery. So He would put something in instead of them to release them from their slavery. And listen, the slavery that Jesus is dealing with here, the slavery that we find ourselves under is a cosmic slavery. A slavery to self. A slavery to... It's not just some, some, some warlord that we're being released from. Human, right? But slave, slavery to self, sin, and Satan. We're enslaved. And so Jesus purchases that cosmic... Uh, that, that frees us from that cosmic slavery with a cosmic payment. Listen, in verse 38, Jesus makes a reference to a cup that he has to drink and a baptism that he must undergo. And, and, and listen, in the, in the cup in the Old Testament, it often referred to the just judgment of God on human evil. Let me give you two places. Isaiah 51, verse 17, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, Isaiah speaks of the cup of God's wrath against sin. And he's talking to God's people who have drank from it as they have experienced His judgment. Or Ezekiel 23, 32-34, Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink your sister's cup, speaking to one kingdom about the other kingdom, saying, listen, your sister piled up all this cup. He filled up the cup of God's wrath, and you're going to drink from it because you didn't learn from her. He says, you... you you shall be laughed at and held in derision, for it contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breast. That's lovely, right? But Jesus, that's what Ezekiel says. That's the cup refers to the cup of God's wrath. And the baptism that Jesus is referring to is about being immersed into something being plunged into something. And he's making an astounding statement here. He's saying that I am making the payment. I am drinking the cup. I will be condemned for all human evil. I will be immersed under the tidal wave of God's just wrath against sin. I will, as he says in verses 33 and 34, be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Jesus says, I will drink the cup. I will take the baptism. I will drink to the dregs, to the very bottom, the cup of God's just wrath and anger against sin. 
and I will be immersed into the suffering as a substitutionary sacrifice in the place of you and I to release us from the prison of our own pride, from the prison of our own sin, from the prison of our own selfishness. From the just penalty of all that incurs for us. In the early church, there was an, epist- uh, uh, an ex- extra-biblical document called the Epistle to Diognetus. And in that document, I want you to listen to how he describes what Jesus is speaking of here. He says, He Himself, speaking of Jesus, experienced our sin. He Himself gave His own Son a ransom on our behalf. The holy for the lawless, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immoral for the mortal. For what else than that one's righteousness could cover up our sin? In who else than in the Son of God alone could our lawlessness and ungodliness possibly be justified? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the fathomless creation. Oh, the unexpected benefits that the lawlessness of many should be concealed in the one righteous and the righteousness of the one should justify the many lawless. That's the gospel, church. That's the good news. That Jesus purchased our freedom and put our, himself in our place at the cross. And you go, well, how does, this, how does this free me? How does this free me from pride? Listen, in the old hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, Isaac Watts, I think, captures it beautifully when he writes, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, whenever you look at the cross, Watts says when you carefully consider, that's what it means to survey something, when you carefully consider the cross of Jesus Christ, he says it's like, 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 like filling a pitcher full of sugar and then dumping a bunch of hot water into it. You know what it does? It just eventually dissolves all the sugar, Right? dissolves all the granules and he says whenever you carefully consider whenever you look deeply into the cross he says it dissolves the pride it pours contempt on it the cross pours contempt on our pride our hubris our arrogance it washes away our self-importance our self-exaltation our self-aggrandizement Our name, our renown is no longer the desire of our hearts, but now His is. The cross makes a mockery, listen, of our worldly pursuit of greatness and glory. And it sneers at all our worldly sources of honor. The cross turns on its head our worldly understanding of power and authority because it flips it upside down. And it pours contempt on our pride. See, (laughs) only... Only Jesus is able to free you. Only Jesus is able to free me from the prideful abuse of power that is the default preset of the human heart. There is no other solution for that. There is no self-help book you can pick up at Barnes & Noble that will magically turn you into an altruistic, self-giving person. It's an encounter with Jesus Christ at the foot of the cross where He lays each of us humble before Him. That's the only solution. And when we carefully consider the cross, we're able to do two things in response. First, 
we're able to pattern our lives after the Son of Man. Pattern your life after the Son of Man. See, Jesus not only came as our substitute, paving the road to reconciliation with God, but he also came to pave the path that we ought to walk in relation to our fellow man. Listen, in verses 33 and 45, Jesus refers himself to himself as the Son of Man. It's one of his favorite titles, one of his favorite designations for himself. And for, for the longest time, until several years ago, I, was, I thought, well, why, why does Jesus just continually call himself the Son of Man? Is it some kind of veiled attempt to conceal his identity because he doesn't want people trying to rush and overthrow the Roman authorities and set up God's kingdom here on the earth? Is, they, they, he doesn't want them to misunderstand who he is. And then I read Daniel chapter 7. And I realized, no, Jesus is saying something much bolder and more direct about who he is. He is not pulling any punches. He's not concealing anything. Because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision that he records in verses 13 and 14. And he says this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed so when jesus speaks of himself as the son of man he's referring back to old testament scripture in daniel chapter 7 where the son of man enters the scene and the ancient of days god the father bestows upon the son of man one like a son of man dominion and power and authority and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and tribes and tongues should serve him and then you look back at verse 45 of Mark chapter 10, you see that Jesus says that the Son of Man, in His first advent, He says, I didn't come to be served, but what? To serve. To serve. In other words, Jesus says, the one who has all power, all dominion, all authority, all rule, who has a kingdom that is everlasting and cannot be shaken, the one to whom every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, the one who would be served by every tribe and tongue says that He didn't come to take from others, but He came to give. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to sacrifice His life for the sake of you and I. That's why He came, church. And I don't think that He says this in this context just to teach us that He is our substitute, though He is. But He is also the pattern for how power ought to work in the context of the kingdom of God. Under the rule and reign and the lordship of Jesus as his disciples in this world, in our earthly relationships. Listen, there's, there's a movie and a TV series that I think captures this rather brilliantly. Um, you have to forgive me because a lot of my movie references are from kids' movies. It's the world that I've lived in for 13 years. But um, if you know the, the Despicable Me movies, okay? So in the Despicable Me movies, you've got Gru, who's like this supervillain, okay? Especially in the first one, he's a supervillain. And then he's got all these little yellow dudes, okay? What are they called? 
minions. Bidding. They run around, you know, like pulling off heists and developing with Dr. Nefario, right? I know too much about this. I know some of you are a little geeked out right now. But developing weapons of mass destruction and things, shrink rays, he's going to steal the moon, do all kinds. I mean, it's just this crazy plot, right? But Gru is at the top and the minions are underneath him carrying out his bidding, right? And that's so often how power and authority is conceived of in our culture. That the one who is in authority is the one who is delegating orders, who's giving commands, the one who is dispensing with his minions or her minions to go out and do their bidding. So often how it's viewed within our culture. But listen, there was a a TV series on NBC back pre-COVID. I have to preface everything with that. Uh, called New Amsterdam, and it was a medical drama, and it chronicled the life of a uh, man by the name of Dr. Max Goodwin. And Max becomes the medical director of one of the oldest and largest public health hospitals in the nation, in New York City, New Amsterdam Medical Center. And as the medical director, you would expect him to be walking around in a suit and tie and boardrooms and meetings, rubbing shoulders with donors and trying to raise money and all this stuff, particularly in a public hospital that needs to be funded. But Max shows up to work every single day in a pair of scrubs. And when when the higher-ups ask him why he's wearing scrubs, he says, because I'm a doctor. Right? And then he proceeds not to just sit in boardrooms and meetings, but he proceeds to walk the halls. He's in the emergency department. And he's in the, the mental health department. He's in the cardiac department, the thoracic surgery department. He's in all these departments, and he's working with the nurses, and he's meeting with the doctors. He even takes the janitorial staff and sits in their break room with them. And everywhere he goes, he constantly asks this question, How can I help? How can I help? In other words, how can I get underneath you and serve? How can I assist? How can I breathe life into you? And listen, if we were to pattern our lives after the Son of Man and understand, listen church, that we who are in Christ, who are connected to God through Jesus, which by the way, there is no other way to be connected to Him. But we who are in Christ, listen, we stand to inherit the earth. Right? Because all that is His will one day be ours along with Him, that we're co-heirs with Christ. So all that it is will one day be ours. And if we understood that, church, and then we saw the one the one who came and gave his life is our ransom in our place and for us, giving himself away, serving the needs of others, caring with a heart of compassion. Then we ought to pattern our lives after his example as well. See, Jesus doesn't say, listen, just withdraw Stop trying to influence others. Stop trying to exercise authority. What he says is, exercise it differently. Do it differently. Which is why he says, not so among you. Not so among you. So pattern your life after the Son of Man. 
what difference would it make in your relationships this week if you were to ask that simple four-word question, how can I help? And then secondly, pursue greatness through giving. Once again, in our culture, greatness is pursued through acquiring or taking control, power, possessions, cutthroat competition, rising to the top of the ladder, pulling the strings, having the final word. But for disciples of Jesus, he says there's an up down, upside down ethic. In verses 33 to 34, Jesus says, it, But it shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. Now there are two terms in this, in this text that are important. First, servant. This word is the word that we get our word deacon from, which in the common Greek language is designated waiting on tables. Okay? So waiting on, t- like a waiter. Jesus says, you want to see someone who's great? Look at the waiter. Look at the waiter. Look what they're doing. They're serving. And then he says slave. In the Greek language, this word designated a category of people lower than the servants. In other words, they were the last and the least of all. He says, if you want greatness, and he, listen, I don't think Jesus is saying you shouldn't pursue greatness. He's saying you should pursue greatness, not through power and prestige, but greatness through service and sacrifice. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom, he says. That you put yourself underneath the needs of everyone else. That you serve others, that you give your life away. That you don't spend your life stacking up Uh, minions to do your bidding, but you walk around asking, how can I help? Where can I serve? What can I do to lighten your burden? What can I do to lighten your load? That's what Jesus says. And I want you to consider how this shift from having servants to being servants might change the dynamics of your human relationships in the workplace. Do something to decrease rather than increase the load on those who are working with you this week. Care more than about the bottom line. Invite dissenting opinions in the context of your office. Welcome that. Applaud that. It may not be that you move forward with that direction, but there is freedom to share it and discuss it openly. And care more than about the bottom line, but care about the people that you're working alongside. Serve them in real and tangible and practical ways? What about in your marriages, husbands? What if you were to set aside your wants this week for your wife's needs? What if you were to sacrifice in order to serve her? And you were to, you were to, you were to crucify your flesh to serve her. Wives, serve your husband this week by finding something to affirm in his life. If you were to serve him in that way. Now listen, I know in my, life, my wife, it's hard for her to find something Right? Maybe that's where you are too. But find something to affirm in him this week. Serve him that way. What if as a parent you cultivate a responsibility in your kids rather than just continue to enforce their irresponsibility? Right? We have these continued conversations in my home as my kids get older right? about how I'm not going to rescue them right? every time they fail. But they're going to be able to fail. And their failures now have smaller consequences 
their failures in the future are going to have bigger consequences. And if I continue to rescue them from all their failures now, you know what I'm doing? Partly, I am trying to control the outcomes of their lives as I, of their lives as I rescue them from all of that so that I can, can maintain that position of authority and not have to deal with the difficulties their failure might create for me. Versus allowing them to fail in small ways now. So they learn, Lord willing, from that failure and move forward. And then they learn how to deal with disappointment. They learn how to deal with failure whenever they're outside of your home as well. That's a way of serving your kids. They don't see it that way. But it is serving them. Listen, it changes the dynamics of all kinds of relationships whenever our hearts are set free from pride and we're pattering our life after the Son of Man, taking the authority that we have in whatever situation. Because what Jesus isn't doing here is not flattening everything and saying, no one has authority. What he's saying is, authority is exercised in the kingdom through service and sacrifice, not power and privilege. What might it look like, church? What might it look like if in our life, individually and our life collectively as a church body, we were known in this community as a people, as a people who in the pattern of the Son of Man are laying their lives down for the sake of our neighbors, laying their lives down for the sake of our city, laying our lives down for the sake of our families, laying our lives down for the sake of those who are lost and do not know God. What might that look like? I think it would look beautiful. And I think God would receive great glory and honor from it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the day, for your word that rings true in our lives, in the context of our lives individually, corporately, culturally. Father, I pray that as we set our feet on the path of discipleship as your people, God, that you would help us to consider the cross carefully, survey it daily. Father, that our hearts might find that contempt is being poured and slowly dissolving our pride day after day after day. So that we'd be free from these predatorial and abusive types of behaviors and relationships. And when I don't be free from those things, we'd be free for a life that is lived. A life that is lived in service and sacrifice. Father, not to earn anything before you, not to merit any reward from you, but as a simple response coming from a heart of gratitude in response to your grace that you have ransomed us, that you have freed us, And Father, may we walk in the light of that freedom. And may it reach into the corners of our lives and bring real change. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.